Section 3 of Tales of English Minsters, Canterbury Cathedral, Kent, and St. Paul's Cathedral, London, by Elizabeth Wilson Grierson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 3, St. Paul's Cathedral, London, Part 1. St. Paul's Cathedral, The Church of the Citizens. 1 i am sure that there is no one who goes to london for the first time no matter how hurried he may be who does not try to visit at least three places the tower westminster abbey and st paul's cathedral of these three places two are churches but they are churches that are so connected with the history of our nation that they almost seem to stand at the heart of the empire their stories are linked together in a curious way and yet they are quite distinct as someone has said Westminster Abbey was ever the church of the king and government, St. Paul's was the church of the citizens. When we come to study the history of cathedrals, we find the way in which they came to be built is pretty much the same in most cases. A little church was raised to the glory of God, and a monastery was founded beside it, which became the home of a community of monks or nuns, ruled over by an abbot or abbess, and the church was known as the Abbey Church then by and by sometimes not till quite late as at st albans a bishop's stool was placed there and the abbey became a cathedral but in the case of st paul's cathedral it is quite different it was built for a cathedral from the first its builder instead of adding a monastery to it as was usually done built a monastery having its own abbey on a little island which stood in some marshy ground on the banks of the thames about a mile away this island was called thorny island and the abbey church was dedicated to st peter but soon it began to be spoken of as the westminster or westminster abbey by which name we know it today. this is how it all came about in the time of the early britons there were christian churches scattered up and down the land and it is almost certain from stones that were dug up when the foundations of the present cathedral of st paul were being laid that in those far bygone days a little church stood on the hill of ludgate in the centre of roman london but as you know the roman legions were recalled to rome in a d four ten to help the soldiers there to drive back the vast hordes of goths and barbarians who were pouring down from the northwest upon italy and when they were withdrawn from britain there were not enough fighting men left to protect her shores from the next enemies who threatened her these were the jutes the angles and the saxons fierce and heathen warriors who came from jutland and from germany and landed on our coasts they conquered the british and rapidly forced their way inland ravaging and pillaging wherever they went and in the confusion and misery that followed christianity was completely swept away for a time to come again with st augustine and st columba some two hundred years later you know too perhaps that when st augustine came to canterbury and began to preach the gospel there the king of kent ethelbert by name soon became a christian this king ethelbert was a very powerful monarch and he was overlord of the king of the east saxons who chanced to be his nephew and who lived in what we now call essex now while st augustine preached to the men of kent a friend of his named Malitus preached to the east saxons and when at last their king became a christian his uncle ethelbert suggested that as kent had its bishop of canterbury with his cathedral church it would be a good thing for the kingdom of the east saxons to have a bishop of its own who would have his cathedral church also 
so as london was the capital of the east saxons he proposed to help king siebert to build a church there and augustine only too glad to find that the faith was spreading said that miletus should be its first bishop it was in this way that the first cathedral of st paul was built and as we have seen siebert also founded the church and monastery of westminster now although their king had been baptized and had built two churches in their midst the people of london did not want to become christians they were pagans and were quite content to worship thor and odin the gods of the tribes of the north so for a long time the good bishop miletus preached to them in vain and far away in rome pope gregory who had hoped that the new cathedral in london would become what we call the metropolitan church of england that is the church where the archbishop has his throne was sadly disappointed and had to become accustomed to the idea of canterbury which was a far less important place than london having that honour indeed for a time it seemed as though in spite of church and bishops the new religion would be driven out ethelbert died and so did his nephew siebert and the kings who succeeded them either went back altogether to their pagan worship or tried as an east anglian king did to worship thor and odin and christ all at the same time i will tell you just one story about those troubled days and it will show you what a terrible struggle went on between paganism and christianity and how much we owe to these brave men priests and abbots and bishops whose names are almost unknown to us on whom rested the responsibility of maintaining the faith in england and of whom to their honour be it said hardly one failed one day bishop miletus was administering the holy communion in his church to the little congregation of christians who still remained true to what he had taught them it is probable that the altar stood then just where the high altar in st paul's stands to-day only the church would be much smaller and plainer and the door would be locked to prevent unbelieving pagans entering and disturbing the service by irreverent jeering and laughter suddenly a loud knocking was heard then the crash of falling wood the young king and his friends had chanced to be passing and in a moment of heedless excitement had determined to visit the christian's church and see what amusement they could get there angry at finding the door locked against them they had broken it down without further delay up the aisle strode the king followed by his mocking companions to where the old bishop was engaged in distributing the consecrated bread to the kneeling communicants in those days white bread was a rarity most of it being dark-coloured and unwholesome and this white bread that was used for the holy communion was the whitest and purest of all for in order that it should be so pious people even the clergy themselves used to grind the meal carefully with their own hands and bake it into loaves bring it to church as their offering give me some of that white bread cried the young king stretching out his hand you gave it to my father siebert give it also to me perhaps he thought in his reckless insolence that the bishop would obey but king siebert had been baptized christian his son was a pagan and an unbeliever so king though he was he could not be allowed to join with the christians in their solemn feast and the brave old bishop told him so knowing full well that the refusal might cost him his life 
the young king did not put him to death however though he was very angry perhaps he was ashamed to do so but it cost him his bishopric for he was driven out of the kingdom and had to leave to seeming ruin all the work that was so dear to his heart but it was only seeming ruin he had done his work faithfully he had laid the foundations as it were and as has ever happened in the history of the church god saw to it that there were other men ready to step in and build upon these foundations other bishops were appointed bishop said and bishop erkenwald and in their days the christian faith began to take root and spread among the citizens of london and they improved and beautified their cathedral until it became famed for its riches and grandeur indeed bishop erkenwald was such a famous preacher and did so much for his church that when he died he was buried in a golden shrine which people came to see just as they visited the shrine of st cuthbert at durham and st thomas at canterbury as for stout old bishop Melitus, although he was driven into exile for a time he became in after years archbishop of canterbury and his bones lie in the cathedral there now it is a curious thing how often those old churches that we are talking about were destroyed either wholly or in part by fire and if there was one church that was fated to suffer more than another in this way it was st paul's it was partly burned down in a d nine fifty one by that time the normans were in the country and they set to work at once to rebuild it when it was finished it was a very splendid church indeed but once more it suffered severely from a fire which broke out in the city and destroyed everything from london bridge to the church of st clement danes which stands in the strand let us see what this cathedral of the middle ages was like it was the largest church in england and was shaped like a cross and instead of having a dome as the present cathedral has it had a great square tower in the centre with a wooden spire four hundred and sixty feet high it stood in the middle of a churchyard which was surrounded by a high wall we still talk about st paul's churchyard although it is long years since anyone was buried there but if we are in london and take a bus along the crowded strand and up ludgate hill we shall arrive at this old churchyard and then we shall see the st paul's of to-day and shall be better able to picture to ourselves the st paul's of the middle ages when we leave our bus we find ourselves in an open space bounded on all sides by busy streets and fine shops in the centre of this open space stands an immense church with a huge dome rising from its centre and on the top of the dome standing clearly out against the sky so far up that it can be seen from nearly all parts of london is an immense gilded cross in front of the church there are two great flights of steps which lead down into a broad paved space only separated from the street by a row of low stone pillars while round at the sides lie pleasant gardens with flagged walks where pigeons flutter about and where in summer hundreds of busy clerks and shop-girls and message-boys come and sit in their lunch-hour and get a breath of fresh air and a little sunshine but where is the old churchyard you ask looking round in amazement i will tell you these gardens and the great space in front of the church stand to-day where st paul's churchyard stood long ago only there is no longer a wall around them and although the name remains the gravestones have long since disappeared 
let us try however to think that we are back in the middle ages and imagine ourselves standing among the graves in the old churchyard in front would be the great church bigger than that which now rises before us with its square tower and wooden steeple at the northeast corner of it we would see a curious erection like a low eight-sided tower with a stone cross on the top of it that was called paul's cross and it was almost as important a place as the cathedral itself as i said at the beginning st paul's church was the church of the citizens the monarchs of the land might be crowned or buried at westminster but it was to st paul's that the people crowded when they wanted to meet together and stand up for their rights so there was a great bell in the cathedral belfry like the bell in st giles cathedral in edinburgh which was rung whenever a question arose which concerned the burghers of the city and when its deep tones were heard the people ran out of their houses and thronged into the churchyard through the six gates which pierced its encircling wall and crowded around paul's cross and the aldermen ascending by steps to the top of the eight-sided tower stood near the cross and spoke to them here royal proclamations were made quarrels were settled grievances stated and put to rights here also sermons were preached in the open air by famous preachers indeed i think that i may safely say that paul's cross was the centre of the public life of london it has long since been pulled down however but if we go to the northwest corner of the gardens we can still see the place where it stood clearly marked on the pavement the bishop's palace also stood within the wall and two little churches one of which was founded by gilbert Becket, father of thomas of canterbury who was a silk mercer in cheapside while the other was a parish church the church of st faith which was pulled down in after years and the people who went to service there were allowed to worship in the crypt of the cathedral instead it would only weary you to attempt to describe the interior of the old church it would be very like the other cathedrals of that time which were all more richly adorned before the reformation than they are now all the accounts which we read of it show us that it was very magnificent with rich carvings and stained glass and no less than seventy side chapels and chantries each with its own altar and richer than all others the great shrine of st erkenwald with its ornaments and jewels i think that it will be much more interesting to talk of some of the scenes that took place there in these far-off days let us go back for instance almost eight hundred years to the day when the news arrived in london that the king of england henry i lay dead in france he and his brother william rufus were as you know sons of the great norman conqueror and during their reigns the country had been well governed and prosperous but when henry died no one quite knew what to do next for the rightful heir to the throne was henry's daughter maud who had married a french count of anjou who as you remember was the first of his race to be called plantagenet because he was in the habit as he rode along of plucking a piece of broom plantagenista and sticking it in the front of his cap now the english people did not love this geoffrey of anjou who was a greedy and selfish man and they had no wish to have him for their king as they would certainly have to do if his wife became queen so their thoughts turned to maud's cousin count stephen of blois 
who although his father was a frenchman had an english mother and who had been brought up in england at his uncle's court most people wished to have him as their king but no one dare suggest it until the citizens of london took matters into their own hands the country needed a monarch they said and if the barons would not take the responsibility of electing one they would and without more ado the portreeve or lord mayor and aldermen caused the great bell of st paul's to be rung summoning the burghers to a folk mote or council and when they had all gathered around the cross in the churchyard the matter was discussed and it was agreed that it would be better for england that stephen should be king rather than that maud should be queen and straightway the city gates were thrown open to the count and the citizens swore allegiance to him and he was crowned king of england perhaps after all it would have been better if the citizens had chosen maud for as history shows stephen did not turn out to be a very good king another great decision that was made at a public meeting at st paul's was the framing of magna charta the great charter which secured for all time to come justice and liberty to english freemen in these old days especially after the normans came into the country kings were apt to think that might was right and that they could do what they chose with their subjects if a man displeased the king or if he wanted to seize his land he could simply throw him into prison and keep him there sometimes until he died without giving him even a trial then too if the monarch wanted money he simply forced the people to give it to him and no one had any security that what was his to-day might not be the king's to-morrow when henry i came to the throne he wanted to please the people because he had an elder brother living who had gone to the crusades and he was afraid that unless he gained the affection of his subjects before his brother came back they might choose the latter to be king instead of him so he granted them a charter promising not to seize any of their property nor to tax them unduly nor to touch any of the lands belonging to the church he did not keep those promises very well however and his successors stephen and henry and richard and john did not keep them at all and by the middle of king john's reign the country was in a very bad state indeed no heed was given to the advice or wishes of the great nobles who ought to have had a voice in the government of the country while the common people were so oppressed and downtrodden that they were ready to rise in rebellion and they would have done so if it had not been for the wisdom and prudence of two great men stephen langton archbishop of canterbury and william marshall eldest son of the earl of pembroke stephen langton was a foreigner whom the pope had sent to canterbury but he was a good man a real father in god to his people and he believed that he was set over them to look after their bodies as well as their souls when he found out how downtrodden the poor folk of england were he made up his mind that such a state of things should not continue so he began to inquire into the laws and he found out about this old charter which had been granted by henry i but had never been kept and had long since been forgotten the wise archbishop did not say anything but he quietly set to work to find a copy of this charter after some trouble he discovered one hidden away among the papers of an old monastery he then summoned all the chief people in the country to meet him at st paul's cathedral that was one of the most memorable assemblies in english history 
all the powerful nobles and barons all the stately bishops and friars all the sober aldermen of the great city met together and listened with deep interest while the archbishop read aloud to them the promises which had been made by henry i and recorded on the parchment which he held in his hand then pointed out to them that these promises had never been kept and that the people of england had a right to demand that they should be kept he finished his speech by calling upon his listeners to band themselves together and never rest satisfied till they had obtained redress from the grievous wrongs which had pressed upon them and upon their poorer brethren the archbishop's words were not in vain nobles and barons crowded round him and laying their hands upon their swords took a solemn oath that they would insist upon the principles of henry's charter being maintained and would do their best to protect the liberties of the people this was just before christmas time and when the king came to hold his christmas court in london these same nobles armed to the teeth and accompanied by the churchmen and the principal citizens appeared before him and demanded that he should listen to their requests and make proper laws to guard their liberties king john was frightened but he did not want to give in so like the weak man that he was he did not return a direct answer but said that he would think over the matter and meet them again at easter he thought that in this way he could put them off and never give them an answer at all but the people were determined and formed themselves into an army which they called the army of god and of holy church and all the clergy and all the citizens of london and exeter and lincoln supported them and the king was obliged to yield so it came about that one june day a great assembly of people met on the banks of the thames near windsor on one side was encamped the king with a handful of followers and on the other the great army of barons and nobles and citizens had pitched their tents on a piece of marshy land known by the name of runnymede in the middle of the river was a small island and on this island a few men chosen by the king and a few men chosen by the nobles met to discuss matters at least they pretended to discuss matters for every one knew what the end would be the king was powerless to resist the wishes of the great concourse of people gathered across the river and before nightfall magna charta the great charter had been drawn up and signed i cannot tell you all the good things that were secured to englishmen by this great deed but there was one thing which above all others it gained for them and gained for us as well justice it is one of our proudest boasts that by english law no man be he ever so poor or degraded is condemned unheard that every man is counted innocent till by a fair trial he is proved to be guilty and the very foundation of our freedom rests on some words that were written that day on that old parchment we will sell to no man we will not delay nor deny to any man justice or right but if the great bell of st paul's could call the citizens to fight for their liberty as englishmen against the oppression of the king it could also summon them to fight for their liberty as churchmen against the oppression of the pope we must always remember that when first christianity was brought to england in the time of the romans and the ancient british church was formed it did not owe allegiance to the bishops of rome as it did in later days 
it was only after it had been swept away by the invasion of the angles and saxons and then brought back again to the south of england by st augustine who came direct from pope gregory of rome that the belief arose that it was right that the church of england should be ruled by the pope up in the north on the other hand in scotland and in northumbria where christianity had been brought by st columba and his followers who as you remember came from ireland it was a very much longer time before the church would admit the papal claims although at last it did so and st aidan and st cuthbert who founded the northumbrian church being missionaries from the ancient british church which st columba represented did not feel obliged to obey the pope in the same way that st augustine did it would take me too long to tell you about the differences that existed between the church in the north and that in the south the chief of which was that they did not keep the festival of easter on the same day the church of st augustine following the example of rome kept it on one day the church of st columba following the example of the british and eastern churches observed it some ten days later as the russians and greeks still do but as time went on the rule of the pope began to weigh heavily upon the english people they thought that they had the right to elect their own bishops and archbishops while the pope thought that he had the right to do so and at first he very often sent foreigners to fill the english seas sometimes indeed very often they were good men the saintly bishop hugh of lincoln came from savoy archbishop theodore of canterbury was a greek who came from faraway tarsus the city of st paul but some of them were bad men haughty and insolent who wanted to override english laws and english freedom and when this happened the people were apt to rebel and declare that only english bishops should rule in the church of england things came to a crisis when in the thirteenth century a great many italians came over to england and were given some of the highest offices in the country among them were two brothers of good birth peter of savoy and his brother boniface peter who had a grand house on the strand called savoy house was made a privy councillor and was given the chief seat at the king's council board boniface who was a priest was by the wish of the pope made archbishop of canterbury now boniface of savoy had mistaken his vocation he was young and handsome and full of roistering spirits he would have made a good soldier and doubtless his men would have admired him for his reckless daring but he was haughty and insolent and overbearing and sadly lacking in common sense not fit to be placed in the great position in which he found himself he brought with him a band of armed retainers who when they rode through the streets of london robbed the stalls in the market-places as though they had been wild marauders instead of the servants of a christian bishop their master behaved no better than they did there was in the city a monastery called st bartholomew's in smithfield he resolved to visit it and appearing at the gate with his men demanded an entrance for some reason the prior resented this perhaps boniface's insolent manner made him angry perhaps he felt that it was the bishop of london's place to inspect his monastery and not the archbishop of canterbury's at any rate he refused to admit the prelate and what do you think happened without more ado the archbishop clenched his fist and knocked the prior to the ground 
it was a foolish as well as a wicked act for of course the news of what had been done spread through london and the citizens began to say to each other that a man who could do a deed like that was not fit to be an archbishop a little time afterwards boniface determined to visit st paul's cathedral and call upon the bishop of london for his tithes or first fruits he may have been acting quite within his rights to do this i do not know but the citizens at any rate made up their minds that if he came with his demands to their cathedral church he would find out what they thought of him so the big bell was rung and they gathered around the cross in their thousands archbishop boniface heard of this in his palace at lambeth and although he would not be turned from his purpose he put on a suit of armour under his robes before he ventured near the cathedral when he arrived there he found to his rage that the citizens had closed the gates against him and instead of being awed by his angry remonstrances they jeered and hooted at him and even threatened him with violence so that at last he thought it wise to go home but worse was to follow now that an italian archbishop sat on the throne of canterbury a great many italian priests came over and were given the best livings in the church their manners were no better than those of their countrymen and the citizens became so enraged at the behaviour of these foreigners and at the unjust way in which the pope had forced them upon them that they determined that not one of them should set foot in the church that they looked on as especially their own and they were in such deadly earnest that it actually came about that when two of these priests attempted to enter the precincts one day the people crowded into the churchyard and killed them on the spot after this they rushed to lambeth and besieged the palace there uttering such threats that boniface uh, the handsome archbishop as they called him was glad to escape as best he could and fly abroad for safety he never came back and we can fancy that the pope was more careful in future whom he sent to england for the citizens of london had taught him a lesson and shown him that he could not lord it over them with impunity just one more story about these old days and then we must come to the st paul's that we know it was in the reign of king edward the third and the church of england had lost its first purity and grown rich and corrupt many of the bishops and clergy had forgotten what they had been made ministers of god for and instead of thinking about the deeds of their people they thought only of how much wealth they could heap up for themselves and how luxuriously they could live End of section three.